Lord, we're just going to open in a word of prayer. Father, I just want to thank you for this time. And I want to thank you that you made us fearfully and wonderfully. Lord God, I pray that this morning your Holy Spirit would be with us. And I pray that for each one of my sisters here, Lord, would get a, even a deeper glimpse into who you created them to be, Father, and would fall in love with that person more deeply, Lord God. Today, I pray that, Lord, I, I know so many of us feel so flawed and so unworthy. And my prayer, Father God, is you just help each woman here today see themselves a little bit more the way you see them, Lord. So I pray now for this time. I pray you'll bless us and be with us in Jesus' name. They're organizing me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Okay. Well, good morning, everybody. I am I'm really excited to be with you, sharing with you today. And this subject of um, embracing our identity and of who we are is really is one that's really close to my heart. In fact, I would say. Probably it's been the thing in my life that's sort of been my quest of, during my adult years anyway. Who am I and how did God, who did God create me to be in his kingdom? That's been my, my I guess, my journey. I've, I've often asked myself that question. Um, so individually, this is an area that's personally really exciting for me and really um, important to me. But also, I, I'm a therapist. So I also work with women, well, men and women, but particularly a lot of women, Christian women, and I get the opportunity to see how they feel about themselves. And, I'm, and I certainly know that so many of us do not feel that we are good enough, that we do not feel, we feel flawed in some ways. We don't see ourselves the way Jesus sees us. So as a therapist, this is, this is my passion as well, just helping women understand who they are in Christ. I wanted to start by reading you a poem um, it's called Eye for an Eye, and it's I as in I. At ten past three on a wet afternoon, I observed a man living my life. He carried it off with surprising ease, dispensing smiles like painkillers. Between phone calls, he stared at the window as if there was something dead fixed on the glass. Who are you, I asked him. I've come to relieve you, he said. Don't forget my commitments, I tendered, wanting to make myself useful. But the imposter was already busy signing checks and making appointments. Without further ado, I turned away, looking for a life that fit. I wonder how many of us at times look for, are looking for a life that fits. We're so busy and distracted. We're doing our thing, or going about life, and there's nothing wrong necessarily with that, but how often do we, do we sort of take a pause and think, is this really who I am? Am I really doing what I'm supposed to be doing? Am I really being who I'm supposed to be being? And in fact, some of us might like someone to come and relieve us, another one that could take over and do all the things that we really need to get done while we kind of go and ask that question. 
But most of the time, we don't even get around to asking the question. So I want us to think about that today. What is a life that fits for us? I know I've certainly asked myself some of these questions. Who am I, really, deep down? What makes me tick? What, what makes me happy? Who am I supposed to be? Why am I so different from other people? Maybe sometimes I feel those differences aren't OK. And how comes other people don't always seem to understand me? That's another question I ask myself often. Today, I want to do two things primarily. The first one is I'm going to want to help you understand a little bit more about your uniqueness and your giftings in God. And I'm going to do this using a tool called Myers-Briggs. Many of you may have heard of it, and we'll talk about it in a minute. Um, but I want to do this because I want you to get a sense of, the, of what God put in you, and that that was good. And then I'm going to talk about how do we allow ourselves to embrace our authentic self and be okay with others around us being authentically themselves. And I want to speak a little bit to that part too. Not only do we need to be authentically who we are, can we let others be authentically who they are? Now, I think if I were to ask most of you the question, is it okay to be different from somebody else? I, th I believe if I came around, most of you would say, of course, of course it's okay to be different from someone else. Um, we, but I would also tell you that I know as a therapist and as a human being that even though you may, we may say that, many of us don't actually behave that way in life. We, we say it's okay to be ourselves, but then when we're presented with situations where we feel differently or think differently from somebody else, how many of us have used things like people-pleasing? How many of us have said yes when we really mean no? And it's, you know, I'm not talking here, sometimes we have to sacrifice. You know, sometimes there are times when we say, you know, I need to do that because that's an important thing to do. It's not convenient. It's not what I want to do, but it's important. And I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a perpetual pattern of doing things we don't want to do all the time. And usually what builds up in us is a sense of anger and resentment when we do those things. So I think many of us can identify with that. And, and that stops us from being who God created us to be. How many of us feel that we need to be perfect all the time? We, need to, we worry about our appearance. We worry about what other people think of us. Uh, we try and watch the right movies, be with the right people, do the right things, eat at the right restaurants, etc. We try and look right and be perfect. How many of us do those things? Or we're fake in some way. We kind of put on an act, a mask. That would suggest that we don't think it's okay to be who we are. If we really thought it was okay, we're more likely to not do those things. Then on the other hand, maybe we don't like other people being who they are, because maybe it's inconvenient. Maybe they're our family members, <laughs> our spouses, right? And so we do things like, I, do, I know none of you have ever done this, okay? But you've never tried to control anyone, right? And you've never tried to manipulate anybody else, or maybe emotionally guilt trip them so that they do what you want them to do or shame them in some way, or pressurize them. No, I know none of you have ever done those things. But I have, I have to confess. And that usually comes because I, I have a hard time sometimes that other people's lives might have different goals from mine. And that they may actually have been created by God to have a different goal from my life. So, so, that's, so I wanted to start with this question. Are we okay? Are we special? And I had um, the band sing the song, Psalm 
139. I just wanted to take a quick look at that psalm because it is one that I love. It should be in your handout. I wanted to start with the perspective as, are we special? Are we special? (coughs) And this, this psalm says, For you, God, formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they all were written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. And I love this psalm because it tells us that God skillfully made us. You were skillfully made. And I looked up the word skillful. It talks about it being experienced um, and paying attention to detail and knowing what they're doing. So some of us sometimes think that God didn't know what he was doing when he created us. He made something that was wrong. But that psalm tells me that God doesn't make junk. He doesn't kind of, you know, go, okay, that one, that one, that one, oh, and... I'll, that one I'll just is, a, is okay. I'll just kind of, you know, I'm kind of tired. I've had enough today. So I'll just create her. She'll be all right. <laughs> I don't think God did that. In that psalm, I don't get that. We were made in secret. He saw us before the beginning of time. He, he formed us in our mother's womb. Everything that's in you, he put in you. And I think that's so important for us to see and hear and read that because I'm really going to spend a lot more time talking about the giftings that you have. So firstly, I want you to see that you are special, that you are special. And I really also believe that because God created us and he gifted each one of us, he has a role for each one of us in his story. And we can only fulfill that role that he has for us if we accept that uniqueness and if we accept that we are who we are supposed to be, that he created you all those desires and longings and yearnings and strivings you have in you were put in you by God. And they're not wrong. They're not wrong. So that's the first thing I wanted to, to let you know today. Now I'm going to teach you just a little bit about something called Myers-Briggs. I want to spend about 10 minutes. If you look in your handout, you'll see a chart with the... Um, I think it might have been written as the... MTBI. It actually should be MBTI, self-assessment, but never mind. And it stands for Myers-Briggs Type Indicator, self-assessment tool. Some of you may have taken Myers-Briggs before. Let me tell you, I, I uh, started using Myers-Briggs about 20 years ago. I, work, I was working in HR in London, and I, have, I was trained in this tool, and I've used it for about 20 years. And so I know a lot of people and a lot of types. So I've had the opportunity to witness different types, many for 20 years. So I've had a good sense of what each type is like. I'm going to do, some of you might know your type, that's fine. I'd like you just to listen anyway as carefully as you can, just because I might present it slightly differently to you. And what I also want you to do is do a little self-assessment. We're going to do a sort of quick and dirty Myers-Briggs self-assessment to get your type. So I'm going to go through the scales really quickly and tell you what they mean and what they are so that you can decide which type you are. I'm not going to be so concerned about what type you are today. If you want, I can give you more resources. I think there's some more resources in your handout that will speak, that will give you that if you need it. 
I'm actually going to spend more time talking about the temperaments. But in order to get to your temperament, we need to have your type. So we're going to do the type first, and then I'm going to focus more on temperaments. Okay? Does that make sense? That makes sense. <clears throat> okay. So we're going to take the first scale of the four. You see you've got um, four horizontal scales. And these are four processes that we do as human beings, in effect. The first process is extroversion and introversion. This one I honestly think is one of the most complicated in some ways for people to understand. Uh, but it seems like it should be the easiest. Um, <clears throat> the good thing about Myers-Briggs is it doesn't sort of say that you only do one or the other. We will all use both processes. We use the extroverted process and the introverted process. But it's where you, how much of that process that you use that's important. So what I'm going to do is just describe to you what extroversion is and what introversion is and have you decide which one you lean more closely towards. Some of you will say, you know, I know I'm this or I know I'm that really quickly. Others of you might have a harder time and you might be closer to the middle somewhere, if that's the case. You might be closer to that sort of middle line. So the f and what, what is this? What is this process? The process of extroversion and introversion is how do we gather energy from the world? How do we get energized? The extroverts, <coughs> excuse me, the extroverts get energized primarily by the outer world. And in your handout, you'll see some words that describe extroversion. Extroverts are characterized by usually being very social, having a lot of acquaintances, knowing, you know, knowing lots of people, being very expressive, enjoying that interaction, outward interaction. In fact, an extrovert will get kind of lonely. Um, fairly quickly. If they haven't heard from someone for a day or two, or even maybe a few hours, they'll be kind of lonely <laughs> at that point. Not like me. <laughs> um, so they'll, they'll, be, they'll be looking. Okay, who can I email? Who can I call? I need some communication. That's the extrovert. In fact, there's a cartoon I wanted to show you. I hope I can read it from there. Yeah, I, got, I might have to read it from here. My eyesight's not that good. Um, okay. Hey, everybody. My pencil lead just broke. Pay attention. I'm on my way to sharpen it. Are you watching? OK, I'm done. The crisis is over. You may resume your lives. It's not easy being an extrovert. It's sure not easy being an extrovert. You know, I have a little girl who's five. And she is the extrovert in our family. And she's very, she's very extrovert. We went, to, we went to the snow during Christmas, and she um, then we were coming home in the even, one evening, and they were hungry. I have two girls. They were hungry, and my, my, we decided to stop at McDonald's and get them some chicken nuggets. Now, my little one doesn't actually really like McDonald's. In fact, she doesn't really like chicken nuggets. But they were really hungry, so I said, well, why don't you just try them again? Just try and have a few. She said, okay, Mom, I'm so hungry. I will. So we had the chicken nuggets, like there's four chicken nuggets in a box, and she starts eating them in the back, and after about, you know, a minute, she says, Mom, I've eaten half a chicken nugget. I'm like, oh, good. And then like a minute later, Mom, I've eaten a whole chicken nugget. <laughs> a couple of minutes later, Mom, I've eaten two chicken nuggets. And then another couple of minutes, Mom, I've eaten, all, but eaten I don't know, three chicken nuggets and then four chicken nuggets. She gave me a running commentary of her entire <laughs> chicken nugget experience, right? Now, my older daughter's eight. She wouldn't, she's an introvert. She would never do that. She would never do She'd keep it all to herself. She might tell me at the end, if I said, 
Neve, did you eat your chicken nuggets? Yeah, Mom, I ate them. That would be her. She's more introverted. She's sort of processes things more internally. But you're extrovert. If you're very extrovert, you will relate to that. You need to tell everybody everything that's happening in your life immediately. Okay. So, if you identify with that, you're more likely to be an extrovert. Let's talk about the introverts. The introverts, if you look down the list of words for introversion, private and quiet, few, deep. You know, I just want to let you know, introverts aren't necessarily uncommunicative or antisocial. Sometimes I think people think that, and that's not true. Introverts are like having friends too. They, really, they enjoy social contact. They can be good communicators, but they like to get away from people sometimes. They like to draw back, take some time out, and they need to internally recharge their batteries. If they've been con connecting, yeah, some people agree with it. They feel that way. I know, I am actually an introvert too, so I get that. In fact, it's funny because I, I, I am busy. I'm a mom, I work. Sometimes I get in my car by myself, and people have said to me, well, why don't you return phone calls in your car when I'm sort of complaining about the fact that I don't have time to do things? And I think, oh, you know, that's like my sanctuary. Yeah. I get in the car, and it's like no one there. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't want to talk to people on the phone. That would ruin it. So anyway, if you're more like that, you're a little bit more introverted. Now, I'm not a strong introvert, but some people are really, they really need a lot of time by themselves. They, they love being out, but you they go out, they then get sort of de-energized, and they need to come back and reflect and think. And the energy really comes from that process of having time alone, reflecting, um, and recharging that way. So I want you to now take look at the chart and try and put a cross where you think you might be on the EI scale. If you identify, this is where I am. I've put mine on there for you just to give you an idea. I'm an introvert. I'm not a really, really strong introvert. Um, I might be a little stronger than that, actually. But anyway, I, I'm, a, I'm introverted. If you really, really know that you're, you really need a lot of time on your own, you're probably much strong, more strongly introvert. And if you recognize, if you identified with my daughter, Sophie, you're probably very extrovert. <laughs> okay. Has everyone got that? I hear lots of laughter. Okay, let's, um, let's move on to the next one, okay? So I can hear you're all getting into extroversion and introversion, and it'll give you lots of things to talk about during the brunch, right? Um, so the second preference is called sensing, which is the S, S for sensing, and N for intuition. What I want you to know about this process is, okay, you, the extroversion, introversion, you gather energy, you've energized yourself somehow for the day, either extrovertedly or introvertedly. The next thing that we all do is we gather information. We, there is information coming in our brains continuously. This is what this process speaks to. It's your information gathering process. The sensors gather information through their five senses. That makes sense, right? So they see, touch, hear, uh, taste, whatever, feel, the, uh, the world around them. They use their five senses to gather information, primarily. Again, you'll use both. You'll use both. Remember, if you're a sensor, you use intuition some of the time, and vice versa. <coughs> but the, um, 
sense, people who prefer sensing are the ones that um, prefer using their five senses. And if you look at the words I've written down under sensing, that, makes, that generally makes senses quite practical. They're, they're more concrete. You know, they're thinking they enjoy realism because what you can see and touch is real, right? They also tend to prefer the past. They enjoy, they, they value past experience because it's concrete, it's done. We know, it happened. A little bit more suspicious about the future, a little bit less excited about that sometimes because it's not, we don't know what's going to happen with it. It's not concrete. So if you're sensing, you'll probably see yourself as more practical. That might be the way you describe yourself. And you enjoy details, and you're very present-focused. Um, now, if you're more intuitive, how do you gather information? There's nothing left, right? The intuitives gather information through, I guess, like a sixth sense, a hunches. In effect, what they do is that they scan the environment more for patterns and themes. And so, so intuitive people tend to prefer concepts and ideas and abstractions. And they're often thinking about possibilities, new ideas, new ways of doing things. They're future-oriented. They're not very excited about the past. The past is done. There's no possibilities with the past. <laughs> so we have to move on to the future, right? And I hope you're kind of thinking about people you live with or no. You're thinking, oh, yeah, I'm different from that person that way. So that's the intuitive way of, of gathering information. These two, this is probably the one where there's most suspiciousness between the two types. The sensors and the intuitives have a hard time with each other. The sensors <coughs> think that the intuitives are daydreamers and unrealistic. And the intuitives think the sensors are kind of stick in the muds and boring and practical. <laughs> Right? <laughs> so that's your sensing and intuition. Again, I want you to try and take a minute and think about where you might be on the scale, where you would put your cross. Do you identify very closely with the intuitive? Is that very strong for you? You'd, that's me. I have to tell you, I'm intuitive. <laughs> hard to finish things. I, I find it hard to finish things. Hard to do paperwork. I, I used to be the, the person that... Um, when I lived in an apartment, when I first moved to San Francisco, the, the mail person used to call me and say, will you please empty your mailbox? <laughs> I'm like, oh, all that paperwork and all that stuff, and I had to deal with all that present practical stuff, really hard. So I'm a very strong intuitive, but you might be closer to the middle. This one, if you can, try and give it your best shot. The extroversion and introversion doesn't affect temperament, which we're going to come on to, but Sensing and intuition really does affect it. If you can't decide, when I go through temperament, it might become a bit more clear which one you are. So let's move on to the third process, which is the T and the F. Which is, dis and, uh, which is the T. The T stands for thinking. <coughs> Excuse me. Thinking and the F stands for feeling. So... Now, let's go back to our processes. The first one, where do we draw, draw our energies from? The second one, you gather information. This process speaks to making decisions. Once you've got information, we need to make a decision about it. And we make decisions in two ways. We make them through thinking judgment or we make them through feeling judgment. Two different ways of making decisions. Again, you'll use both, but you'll have a preference for one or the other. Now, this one's a hard one to describe sometimes. The thinking Judgment, people who prefer thinking judgment like to make decisions that are logical and objective based on the facts that they see. 
And for the one thing about thinking judgment is that most of us, if we were to look at the facts that they had seen, would understand how they got the decision made, right? So it's a sort of logical on the basis of the facts. And the feeling judgment, on the other hand, isn't that it's illogical. Some people would say it was. My husband sometimes thinks it is. Um, but it's more, it's more based on personal values. It's more based on your, who you, what you really value and believe in. So, it does so, so if somebody doesn't hold your values, they may not actually think that your judgment is logical. Does that make sense? So it it's more, seems more subjective, more personal. And it is. That's what feeling judgment, judgment people do. And I will tell you, this is the only one of the processes where there is actually a gender bias. Can you guess where women are more? <laughs> As if we couldn't guess. We're more feeling in our judgment. Men are more thinking in their judgment. Again, there's men who are feelers and women who are thinkers, but as there's, a, there's a lot more people, a lot more women who have feeling judgment than men. So that's, uh, so again, you have to think about where you might be. How do you make your decisions? Do you make them on the basis of personal values or do you base them on the sort of analytical processing of the facts? Sometimes um, people say of thinkers that they're sort of, Heartless, right? Kind of stony-hearted. And they say of feelers that they're soft-hearted and emotional. So you might have heard those words before. Now coming on just to the fourth preference. I'm going through this quickly because I just want to try and get your type done. And the fourth, this fourth process is called is judging or perception. Judging does not mean judgmental, right? I want to make that clear. The, but this fourth preference, you know, you've gathered information and you've made decisions about that information. The fourth prefer preference is about which of those two processes you like to spend most time in. Do you like to spend more time gathering information than making decisions? Or do you prefer making decisions more than you like gathering information? That's probably the simplest way I could explain it to you. The people who prefer J, judgment, prefer making decisions. They like taking in some data but then they like to get things done. Let's get it closed. Let's, let's go for closure. Closed and settled, decided. That's the judgment. That's judgment. If, you're, if you prefer judgment, you will like things organized, structured, closed, decided. That will appeal to you. So you're probably a J. However, if you're perceptive, or how you use perception as your preference, you would prefer more openness. You like, to, you like your information gathering process, so you like to gather as much information as you can before you make a decision. So you like to open, you like to keep things, you like to wait, you like to keep things flexible and spontaneous, maybe not make decisions that much. Sometimes we say P for procrastination. That's uh, happy. And then people do say J for judgmental, but that's not true. Um, so have a think where you might be on that scale too. Judgment or perception. Do you prefer closure or do you prefer things open and fluid? You probably can already see how comes different types find it hard to get along sometimes, given that some people prefer closure and some people prefer openness. So this gives us 16 types. If you, 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 what you should now have is four letters you should have a, the, the graph with four lines and four crosses. There's mine, 
And I'm an, if I take those letters, there should be a little box where you can write your type at the bottom of that chart. And I'm an INFP from that, INFP. That's my type. And I'm one of 16 types. You'll come up with one of 16 types. And I, but I want to show you that even though I'm an INFP, look where my, cross, look where my crosses are. I have a like, close-ish to the E and then a very strong N. And then my F and P are kind of a little bit closer in. But let's say I was, an, I was an INFP and my I was you know, off the scale I. Well, I was right near the end of the I. And what if my N was closer to S? Right? Or my F was very strong and my P was stronger. I'd be a very different INFP than the INFP I am. So I wanted to show you that even though there's 16 types and that sounds like, well, you know, I'm in one of 16 boxes. Really, there's so much, these are preferences. There's so much variation even within an INFP because it will depend exactly how much introversion you like or how much feeling you use. So you really have like, got millions, or millions and millions of different variations in terms of who we are as people. However, we do, what I'm that's why I'm really also going to look at the temperaments. There are actually four temperaments that come as a result of these types. And I'm going to go through with you. What I, I call, what the temperaments are to me is the, sort of the inner yearnings, the driver, driving part of that personality. It certainly is for me. When I look at my temperament, that's really very much who I am and what drives me. And probably any of those people with the same temperament as me, I might find, and I have found this, that they have a similar kind of driving, yearning than, than, as I do. So I'm going to focus on those. I'm going to show you firstly what the four temperaments are and what their goal, the goal of each one is. So I can put the first one up. The first one is the SJ. So if you have S and J, so if you're an ISFJ, an ISTJ, an ESFJ, or an ESTJ, you're an SJ. We call that often the guardian. That's, it's known as the guardian temperament. And the goal of the guardians is belonging and membership and responsibility. That's the goal of the guardian. I'm going to talk a lot more about the temperaments in a moment. I'm just going to give you the goals right now. So that's the guardian. The second one is the SP. And this one we call the artisan. And I'll tell you why that is in a moment. The artisan likes exactly the opposite of the guardian. They like freedom. They're very action-oriented people. They like fun, freedom, and not having too many rules. They like more sort of fluidity. Now, these two marry regularly. Guardians and artisans marry. So if you're married, you may be married, and you're one of these, you might be married to the other one. You can perhaps even already get an idea why people have a hard time sometimes <laughs> valuing themselves or valuing other people with these different goals. Then the third one, the third temperament, is the intuitive feeler. And the goal of the intuitive feelers is meaning. What does it mean? Why am I here? They often like think about growth or potential. And then the final one is the intuitive thinker. And the goal, and we, well, we, sorry, we call the intuitive feeler an idealist. And the intuitive thinker is known as the rational. And the goal of the intuitive thinker is competence. They like to be good at things. They like to, um, yeah, like to be as good as they can at, at things. Now, the, the guardians, you can see with the guardians and the artisans, they both have the S. 
So they both have that practical component. Pr one is practical but prefers closure. One is practical prefers openness. Then if you look at the intuitives, the, the intuitive is possibilities. The intuitive feeler prefers possibilities with people. And the intuitive thinker prefers possibilities with things. Right? So we're going to talk a little bit about each of the temperament. I think there's something in your handout about um, each one. We're going to start with the guardians and help you understand a little bit more about the guardians. Actually, before I do that, I wondered if I could get a show of hands. How many guardians, who, how many of you think you're a guardian? Put your hands up. Okay. Quite a few. Keep, yeah. Okay, how about artisans? How many artisans? Okay. Not many of you. You're in the minority there. How many um, idealists? Yeah, I thought that we'd get quite a few of them. And then how many rationals? Do we have any rationals? Okay. Oh, yeah, good. It's good. I'm glad. So there's a few of each type. As, as I thought, we'd probably have more guardians and more idealists in a church. And if you look at their goals, you might understand why. That might make more sense to you. Um, so I wanted to just get a sense of who was in the room and, and what, you, what you preferred. So let's talk about the guardians. Okay, these are membership-oriented people, and they like to belong and be accountable. And they like to be unselfish and responsible, and they like others to have, see them as responsible people. They're loyal. And the guardians are really the ones that have established and run, continue to run, many of our, basically, our establishments, our communities. So they're so community-oriented and membership-oriented. So you'll find churches and schools and government, um, many of our sort of organizations that are run pretty much by guardians. Those are the kinds of people you will find in those organizations, a lot of guardians. They're very good at things like teaching, accounting, nursing, banking, administering, project management. I'm sure we have quite a few guardians running Coffee Talk. Because if it was left to me, it would not work very well, let me tell you. Um, and I put some famous guardians in there for you. So what's really important to guardians is belonging. They like to belong, right? And I want you to, um, I want the guardians in the room to think about this for a minute. That's really important. God created you this way. He created you with a with a, a need to belong. We, he created all of us with a need to belong in some way, but it's a particularly strong driver for most of you to feel responsible, to feel that you're doing something of service. That's really important to the guardians. And I want you to just think today, is, if you're a guardian, is that something you're getting in your life right now? Is that something you feel that you're moving, you, that that's what you're moving towards? Is that true for you right now? Because there's a game that guardians play when they're not feeling like they're getting those things met. The game that they play is called complaining. <laughs> okay, sorry guardians, that's <laughs> what you do. You know, that guardians are the pillars of, okay, pillars of society in a sense. They're very responsible and when they're not feeling like people are appreciating them, if they're not feeling that they belong, that they haven't got that, they start to complain. And the reason that they do it makes sense in some ways. 
they want to belong so much that they're worried that if they're down and depressed and not feeling good, they're worried that people will forget about them if they're not involved in things. But if they complain a lot, people kind of keep giving them attention. So they feel like they belong still. It helps to keep them connected. Their complaining keeps them connected. But it isn't what really what God intended for them. So you might want to think about that. So the reason that so they complain to keep connected and they hope that that will help them regain their sense of responsibility, but it doesn't. It does the opposite. It makes them look irresponsible. And you know what happens when people complain a lot? Like, what about the rest of us? What happens around people who complain a lot? What do we want to do? We want to walk away. Like, oh, had enough. So that the opposite happens of what they really want. So if you're a guardian, and you ha- I want you to embrace that fact that God put that in you. There is something that God has put in you to care for and take care of others, to be of service, to be responsible. And maybe if, that, if you're stressed at the moment, and you could, there's actually a sheet I have with, your, with stresses on it, in the back of the handout, I think, for, uh, for each type. And at least somewhere. Just make sure. Yeah, there is here. The stresses for the four temperaments. If you look at the stresses, abandonment and lack of belonging is a stressor. And for a lot of guardians, they, that's when they start feeling that they don't fit in, that they don't feel good about who they are, they don't feel like what God created is good. So I would encourage you as guardians to, to think about that. And I'll talk a little bit more about some of the things that we can do in a few minutes. But that's the, the, one of the things the guardian gets into. Um, Let's move on to the artisan personality. I know there's only a few of you. And this isn't surprising to me, actually, because if I look at the goal of the artisan, sometimes belonging and being in a sort of this kind of environment isn't something that a lot of artisans want to do. If you look at the artisans, they're very action-oriented kinds of people. The one thing that describes them is they like to be impressive. They are usually sort of very bold kinds of people. They thrive usually on action, action-oriented and adventure, risk-taking. These, I don't want you to think that they're irresponsible. They're not at all. In fact, some of the things that they like to do, are, they actually like working with tools a lot, but the tool could be like an aeroplane, for instance. They could be a pilot of an aeroplane or a scalpel. They could be a surgeon. But if you think about those jobs, they're a little bit more on the edge. They're a little bit more risk-taking. There's more adventure, they're a bit more adventurous. There's room for something to go, make, go really wrong. But they love that. They thrive on the adrenaline, on the crisis. That's really important to them. So it's not that they are, if they're flowing in terms of how God created them to be, they're doing some amazing things. They're passionate people. They live in the present. They like that adventurous side. And, and they're doing good things. But if they're not, if they're, and, and this is where I think the guardians have to be careful, because sometimes as guardians can, can sort of kind of hem in the artisans a little bit. And rather than appreciating the fact that they enjoy that quest for adventure and risk-taking, try and sort of put a safety net around it. And that can frustrate the uh, artisan greatly. In fact, if you look at the stresses for the artisan, you'll notice it says constraint, Boredom and a lack of impact. A lack of impact. That's what they, they don't like that. And I told you before, the artisans and guardians marry each other a lot. In fact, artisans and guardians account for about 75% of the population. 
So that's why they marry a lot. There's a lot of them. <laughs> but think about it. They, they're with a guardian who wants belonging and community and membership. And then there's the artisan who wants adventure and risk. And it's a, it's a recipe for some problems. And uh, you can imagine. I, I sometimes you think of it that Aesop's fable, like the ant and the grasshopper. The, it's like the guardians are a bit, little bit like the ants, getting, working really hard and steadily all the way through the year. And then the um, artisans are a little bit more like the grasshoppers. They like to have fun and play. And they'll come knocking on the guardian's door when they don't have anything left, when they haven't got any food and it's cold outside, right? So you have that little bit of a dynamic sometimes between these two, these two types. But what the, the game that the uh, artisan plays is an art, like a blackmail kind of game. Where the, it sounds awful, doesn't it? It sounds terrible, these games. Um, <laughs> But the goal is to excite and punish other people in order to create drama. One of the things the artists really want to do is they want to, they, they're bored, right? They're constrained. So they want to produce some drama and excitement. So they, they do kinds of things like, you know, if you don't do this, I'll do that. And they go, oh no, they can't possibly do that. So they'll come up with those kinds of scenarios sometimes. Um, their goal is to be very impressive and grace, graceful, but the problem is when they play this game, they look disgraceful. They often let themselves down. In fact, of all the temperaments, this is the one that can sabotage themselves the most and be the most self-destructive. So it's actually important for the artisans to really start to own who they are and really believe in themselves and believe that that's what God called them to be um, and flow with that and flow with who they're supposed to be. <coughs> So let's just talk about the, the rational personality for a moment. There aren't many rationals. There were only a few rationals. But I happen to live with a rational. My husband is rational. And, he, and I've mar been married for 13 years. So I know this type really, really well. <coughs> Excuse me. And then, um, so there, I said to you before that the rationals, the intuitive thinkers, like abstractions. They like concepts. They're mathematical often, or they like engineering. My husband's an electronics engineer, so he enjoys those. He makes chips. I have no idea what he does, actually, really. But he, he likes something along those lines. And that, that's exciting for him. In fact, next to the bed, he has things like, I don't know, pr physics principles. He reads his bedtime reading and mathematics. I'm like, oh my goodness, how could you read that? So boring. But anyway. <laughs> He likes it. I guess that's who he is. And I've come to embrace that about him, actually, that he enjoys those things. It's not boring for him. Uh, the, the hard thing for the rational types is that they're likely to, they're not so relationally oriented. They do like abstractions and concepts and theories. You'd probably find a lot of these people in the sort of entrepreneurial roles at some of these uh, high-tech companies in Silicon Valley, really good long-term strategists. You'll find a lot of them in, in engineering or um, computer science or various scientific kinds of professions. The hard thing for them is that they, they, they want to look competent. That's their driver. But they play a sort of game called, they call it robot. They call it the robot game. But really, I think it's better to see it as things like they nitpick. They might, like if you've ever been around a rational, my husband is one. You say something, and they'll kind of nitpick everything you say, every single word. Oh, you, do you really mean that, that word? And you're like, whatever, you know what I mean. It doesn't matter. <laughs> so they nitpick, and they also play that that's illogical game. That's illogical. What you're saying is illogical. 
So how do you know? It's, and it's because they are very logical. It's actually quite tricky to argue with them. But the hard thing about them is instead of looking competent, they start looking a little bit like ridiculous. And that is, again, against who God created them to be. The rational likes to feel competent, likes to feel they're good at something. And I have worked with, you know, I have really tried to understand this for my husband in terms of how he was created, that that's important to him. It's important to him to be seen in that competent way. And I've worked really hard to validate him in those areas that he loves. Like when he does something, he, he gets into photography. He reads every single book on photography you can imagine. He spends hours and hours with all kinds of software about photography. And I, I rather than, I mean, sometimes I think, oh, why is he spending so much time on that? But what I now try and do, understanding who he is, is to validate that for him and say, that's great. That's great that you research it so well. It's great that you spend so much time on it. His latest thing is mountain biking. So we read every book. I think he's, he's piled high with mountain bike books. And if I ever want to buy him a present, I have to make sure it's exactly the right thing. Like if he wants a bike lamp, it's not just any old bike lamp. It has to be the precise one that's exactly right, and etc. But rather than, again, getting cross or upset with that, I've come to just embrace that because now I understand. I understand that that's, his, that's who he is, and that's how God created him. And when he's flowing, I mean, he, 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 he's in, he comes to this church and he heads up sound, but when he's flowing in that ministry, he's doing exactly what God created him to do, and he is being the rational that God created him to be. So that's something to also think about in your relationships with other people, too. How can you let them be who God created them to be? And the final personality temperament I want to talk about is the idealist. There's quite a few idealists. Not surprising, we all want to know what it's all about, right? What does it mean? Why am I here? So I'm not surprised that there's quite a few here. Relationship-oriented people, they, their goal of the idealist is to strive to be authentic to become self-actualized, to grow. Um, they love harmony. They like to be in good rapport with others, which is one of the things that causes them problems. Um, they, they like, they're often sort of in my profession, you know, you get a lot of counselors, psychologists, ministers, etc., who are idealists. In fact, it's funny, when I go to the Myers-Briggs conference, I think there's, I went to one a while ago and there was like 30, 30 of us there and we all have to put our types on our lapels. I think, you know, you've got like 28 intuitive feelers and like two of something else. I always feel sorry for that something else. But I have a great time. I'm like with all these intuitive feelers, I think this is what heaven should be like. You know, the intuitive feeling heaven. Anyway, the, the, so the goal of the intuitive feeler is to, um, is to be authentic. So the game that the intuitive feeler plays is called masquerade. We hide behind our masks and we are as inauthentic as we can possibly be, right? So that we're phony, in effect. A couple of the games that the idealists play, I play these, I have to confess. I used to play this one more. I don't play this one actually that much, but it's called Mind Reader. And that's where, because we're very intuitive, and people-oriented, we think we can read everybody's minds. And we think we know what everyone's doing all the time and why they're doing it. And they're probably doing it if we feel bad about ourselves because they don't like us, right? And we feel flawed because we feel flawed. We think, well, you know, it's really they're doing that to hurt me, harm me, because they mean some ill intent towards me. That's, the, that's one of the games that the idealist has to really watch because this is one of the th ways that, that we are robbed again of what God has for us. 
And God intended for that idealist gift that you have to be used to help people grow, release potential, and um, be, be a wonderful thing. But you use it instead to self-destruct, to damage yourself. And, and if you're doing that, I really want you to spend some time with the Lord just asking him to help you to really see things differently. I actually see a lot of intuitive feelers in practice because um, we're all looking for meaning, right? And a lot, there's, there's, we, call, we have a word for it, a term, analysis paralysis. The idealists kind of like just go over and over and over things so much. And for, if you're outside of that, sometimes you think, wow, just give it a rest. It doesn't really matter that much. But I, I am as guilty as the next person. I mean, I'm an idealist. I have done this. Although I don't do that so much. I have to say, God has helped me and taught me so much in that area. I don't do that nearly as much as I used to. This is the one that I have struggled with. And it's funny when God calls you to do something. When, he, um, when I was asked to do this a few months ago on identity, it's really interesting how God uses that which you're going to speak about and teach others about to actually teach you something. And I think he's really caught me on this one. <laughs> and the, the other game that the ideas often play is the martyr game, right? We love to be the martyrs because we're struggling and suffering here. And, but we're going to do it because we want harmony. We want everyone else to be happy. So what we're going to do is uh, put our knees last. We're not going to be authentic, I, the authentic idealist that we're supposed to be and say, these are my needs and they're okay. We're going to make sure all your needs are met. Everybody's around us needs are met. And we're going to put our needs last. And then we're going to feel angry and resentful and irritated because actually everyone lets us do that. So that's annoying. Um, and I, I, I've had to think about that. God has been speaking to me a lot about that. I'm a mom. I have two kids. I work. It's easy, it was easy for me to get into that role, you know, that sort of martyrdom. And it's not a healthy one. I've, and God has been really speaking to me about finding, getting back to my unique identity in him, about me personally seeking him and finding ways in which I can stop playing that game and give myself the time and space I need to be who God created me to be. And I, I really have felt that God wants me to do that. There's a part of him that there's, there's, I think he feels like, you know, I've lost something along the way because I'm playing this game. So I've been sort of, I just wanted to share a little bit about that with you, about the things that stress us and the things that, the games that we play that, in a sense, hide, cause us to sort of hide. Um, I know Karen is going to talk a little bit more to some of those things in her talk. She's going to talk a little bit more about how we don't let ourselves be what God created us to be, some of those behaviors through her own journey. Um, I just wanted to wrap up in the next few minutes by saying that um, a little bit about my own journey as an idealist to try and talk about what do you do? How do you embrace this? How do you be, if you're a guardian, how do, you be, how do you be the guardian? How do you be the artisan? How do you embrace that striving and that yearning inside of you, particularly as you're in relationship with others? And I really want to talk to that part. And I'll give you a personal experience. Um, <clears throat> my own journey, I worked in, I, I'm from London, and I moved here when I was 30. In my 20s, I worked in human resources, um, but when I was 17 and I was thinking about what I wanted to do at, at university, um, 
I really knew in my heart that I wanted to, to study psychology. I just knew deep down inside that that's what was in me. I didn't know much about it, but I just felt that that's what I wanted to study. Now, we're talking 30 years ago in London, in England, and my dad is a guardian, a very strong ESTJ. Now, at that time, psychology was like the loser degree, right? <laughs> he knew people, like friends of his who had sons that have gone, and they've, like, I don't know, weird and wacky, and he thought, why does she want to do this? Why does she want to be a psychologist, of all things? Can't she be a pillar of society like me, right? <laughs> so being at the great idealist I am and liking harmony and not wanting conflict, I said, OK, Dad, I'll do a business, a business studies degree. So I went and did a business studies degree. So I put myself on hold, because we're good at that. And, but it still resonated inside of me. And I came into, I worked in human resources and training for many years which some would say, well, it is kind of got that element to it, right, of people growth, et cetera. But any of you who've worked in HR would know that there's also a lot of paperwork, a lot of administration, a lot of, like, deadlines and getting things done in time. And here I am, an INFP, right, working with some great HR people who are all ISFJs. <laughs> perfect, perfect. And I remember I had this mentor when I was, like, 28 who said to me one day... Um, we were meeting, and she said to me, I was kind of saying, you know, how hard it was for me to do some of these things. And the way I held it was that there was something wrong with me. I held the fact that I found just a lot of organization and structure and closure. I held that as if I was flawed. That there was, I must be wrong. I must, there must be something wrong with me. That I needed to be more like the ISFJs in my world. So I was sharing this with her, and she absolutely stopped me and said, you know what, that's just not who you are. That's not who you are. And it's, that stuck with me ever since. I think then, at that point, I started to own the fact that maybe I was different from the other people in my world. They, they weren't wrong. They weren't bad. But nor was I. Just because... Now, an INFP, we're relatively... I think we're only about 2 or 3% of the population. So there's, I don't come across as that often. But, um, I, you know, I had to start to own that. Like, I'm, I am different. And different doesn't mean wrong. It doesn't mean bad. It doesn't mean flawed. But I felt that way. I've, I've had irritable bowel syndrome, I think, at the time. I was constantly sick and worried. I was stressed out because I was trying to be the best guardian I knew how to be, although I wasn't one. And I eventually, when I was in my mid-30s and I came here, I went back and, started, and did my master's and changed profession. But I remember telling my dad when I was going to do that because I had a good job in HR. I worked for a well-known credit card company. I was a director. I was, you know, had a good salary. And I remember telling him, Dad, I'm going to give it all up. I'm going to go back to school and do a master's in counseling psychology. And he didn't think too much to that. But at that point, I had known the Lord long enough to... And my dad isn't a Christian. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. But I'd known the Lord long enough to, um, to know that actually what God put in me was the right thing. And I had people around me who could speak to that and believe in me for that. And it was a long journey for me. I was 17 when I first thought that I should study psychology. And I was at 35 when I finally got to do it. And I mean, I do believe during that time, God changed me and he, he, had, he had to prepare me. He, had to, he worked with me. His timing is perfect. But I never actually lost. But I, what I didn't do in the last few years was lose the dream. 
at first, I believed, from sort of 17 to 28, I spent most of that time feeling bad about myself, feeling flawed, feeling not good enough, just feeling like I was living on this kind of edge where I could never keep up with the world around me. Never, you know, I was, yeah, anyway, I won't go into that, but just didn't feel good enough. And then from 28 onwards, I started to seek God and say, I believe what you put in me was good. How can I use it? How can I express it in the world? So for yourselves, I know I need to wrap up because I know everyone wants to eat. Um, I'm sure you're all hungry. Um, I want you to think about the, the passions and yearnings that you have inside of you. Pro- they may well be different from mine. Hopefully one of those temperaments resonated with you a little bit. Maybe you've been thinking, I'm not like that person. Maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe I'm flawed in some way. That's not true. That's a lie. And the Bible tells us how to get our needs met through Christ. we're, We're told that he is the source. He created us uniquely and specially, and that that's who we get our needs met. But we also need to be, I think, understanding and gracious towards one another. If you live with somebody who you recognize as a different temperament from you, is driven in a different way, how can you listen to them? How can you embrace them? How can, you spend, how can you say to them, you know, this is who I am. I want to understand a bit more about who you are. And if God brought you together, he put you in the same family, I believe that he's going to, he, he knows why. And you actually are supposed to complement each other. My husband and I are rational and idealist. You know, I like possibilities with people, and he likes possibilities with things. So we do both like possibilities, which is always good. But he's not very fond of people, and I'm not very fond of things. <laughs> So, but we've managed to really understand that for each other, and, and I try my best to really embrace who he is, and that he's, the fact that, he, that I'm different from him, he appreciates that about me, and we try and help each other, and rather than work against each other. You know, the, for artisans and guardians that are together, that's sometimes, I think, a tricky one. The thing that might threaten the guardian is the artisans wanting to, for more risk-taking and adventure, but if you constrain them and pull them, try and make them more of what you are, you're going to take, that, take out what God put in them. And that would be very sad because I really believe that God intended for them to, to have that gifting. And he has a plan for that. But maybe if we can talk about this to, with each other and say, you know, I, I, I know you love community. I know you love membership. But I, it's not really my thing. How can I be me but in a way that isn't self-destructive? how can I be me in a way that God intended for me to be me? Then I really believe that God will use, you know, use us in our walk as Christians and as believers. I really believe that, that he will do that. Um, so I know I think I'm pretty much out of time. So, but as I, as I wrap up, I, I hope you understand a little bit more about your giftings at least. If you're interested more in Myers-Briggs itself, there's lots of books and resources that you can get. I was hoping to have time where you could kind of talk to each other in breakout groups, but we obviously didn't have time. We didn't have time for that. Maybe over the brunch, if there are some things you want to talk to people about, perhaps something that you would like someone else to understand about you that they never have, Um, or something you've now understood about yourself that you never have, if you want to share that. I think it'd be great to take the opportunity to do that. But I also really want to encourage you to to do a couple of things. One is if you don't believe that you're unique and special, to get before the Lord and ask him to show you. 
I went through that process myself. It did take me some time, but I, I began to really believe that what God put in me was good and that I wasn't flawed. That's the first thing. The second thing is to understand who you are, is to begin to just put aside some of the other details in life and really allow yourself to think, what makes me tick? What do I like? Is it okay that I have, maybe I don't like detail, maybe you're the person that the mail per, mailman calls to empty your mailbox or whatever. And that, I try better, I try and be better than that, but that, that's not necessarily a flaw in itself, it's just a different preference, right? And then I think thirdly, just to be gracious to others around you, to help other people be who they're supposed to be. I think as the body of Christ, we're supposed to help others be who they are supposed to be too. And we can block them through all those behaviors I talked about earlier. And I think God is challenging us to say, you know, are you, are you going to, will you own who you are? Will you be the person you're supposed to be? And will you trust me that I will meet those needs? Will you trust me that I will give you the things that you need? Will you abide in me to get those needs met so you don't have to get them met through all those other people around you so you can stop those behaviors, the controlling, the pressuring, or even the people-pleasing, that you will start to accept yourself, accept that God wants to meet those needs in you and that he wants to meet the needs in others and that if he put you with someone who has a different temperament from you, a different striving and yearning in life, there is a way that that can become compatible. Because if God put you together, I really honestly believe that there is a way, he has a way to make it work. But we do need to take our hands off, stand back, pull away, and, and give it to God. And say, Lord, I, I can't do this by myself. I need you. I need you to help me in this area. So I'd really encourage you to just bring your hearts before him and ask him how to help you do these things. I'm just going to close us in a word of prayer and I'm going to bless the food because I'm sure everyone is really hungry. Um, Lord, I just thank you for each of the women here. I know that you uniquely gifted each one of them, that you put something special in each one of them. Lord, that we, none of us need to manipulate or do things we're not, we don't want to do um, or be who we're not supposed to be, control others, etc. Not, that's not how you want us to get those needs met in the world. You want us to get them met through you. You are the source, Lord. You want us to abide in you. I pray for each one of us that you would help us with that, Lord. Your Holy Spirit would speak into our hearts. Your Holy Spirit would help us to be the authentic us that you created us to be. Lord, I, I pray now um, for the women as, they, as they're spending time together that you would bless those relationships, that you would bless conversations, that you would allow healing to come into any relationships that might need to come, Lord God. I pray for this food. I pray that it would be a blessing to us. I thank you for the hands that made it and created it for us. Lord, we appreciate them, and we pray that this food will nourish us and build us up in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.